This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Now to the story of the Redwood Indian Marathon. For centuries, many Native Americans were known to be outstanding long-distance runners who could run ultra-distances. Their talents were used in important roles to carry messages and news to distant communities. One of the most famous ultra-messaging events took place way back in 1680, when a very coordinated system of message runners were dispatched from Taos Pueblo in present-day New Mexico to Hopi villages in present-day Arizona. It was a distance of nearly 400 miles, and it was to coordinate a successful simultaneous revolt involving 70 villages against their Spanish oppressors. Sadly, two runners were caught, tortured, and hanged by the Spanish, but this significant event demonstrated running endurance skill of the Native Americans and was remembered 300 years later and reenacted in 1980 starting in Taos. In the early 1900s, gifted ultra-distance runners were known to be among the Hopi, Yaki, Zuni, Tarahumara, and others. The Hopi had been known to cover 130 miles within 24 hours. The Native American ultra-runners occupied a central role in ultra-running during the early 20th century. Sadly, this fact has largely been forgotten or overlooked. In 1927, a 480-mile race took place on the California-Oregon Redwood Highway that received intense daily attention in newspapers across America. This episode tells the detailed story for the first time of that historic, forgotten race. In 1927, with all the recent national attention to Native American runners, including the Tarahumara, who were coming to run in Texas, the Chamber of Commerce in San Francisco conceived of a marketing idea to focus on the newly constructed highway stretch called the Redwood Highway. This new stretch of mostly dirt road went from San Francisco, California on Highway 101 and then east on Highway 199 to Grants Pass, Oregon, weaving through dense forests of redwood trees. In order to get more attention to the highway and fill hotels along the way, they had a pretty brilliant idea to hold a redwood marathon foot race on the highway stretch. To gain even more media coverage, they wanted to exploit the Indian runner frenzy at that time by limiting the entrance to Native Americans. In March 1927, the Redwood Empire Association announced that a 480-mile race was to be held in June for prizes of up to $2,500. In Oregon, the Cavemen Association of Grants Pass, a club of civic boosters, also jointly sponsored the idea, and they claimed that the event would be, quote, the longest race of its kind in history. Henry Lutkins, the owner and editor of the San Rafael Independent, was named the general chairman of the event. He went to work organizing and promoting the Redwood Indian Marathon. Counties were, quote, scouring the hills for husky braves to make the race. Without the internet or live online results, Lutkins called for a revival of the old Indian method of communication, smoke signals. As the race progresses, 
The positions of the various contestants will be announced by signal fires strung out along the entire route of the race. That turned out to be just a marketing attention grabber. The rules for the race stated, Run when you can, walk when you wish, and sleep if you have to. Finish in 15 days. Don't accept lifts and don't get off the Redwood Highway. Each runner would be allowed a support car that carried their food, drink, clothes, and anything the runner wished. Hotels along the way would provide rooms if wanted. Oregon promoters hoped to find runners to beat those in California. The Grants Pass Chamber of Commerce sought to find runners among the Karuk tribe from the town of Happy Camp, which was located 70 miles away in Northern California on the Klamath River and populated by many Karuk Indians. Henry G. Boers, the owner of the Happy Camp General Store, was named to train the Karuk runners and be a sponsor of the race. Bruce gave the runners Indian-like names which he knew would be liked by the public and enhance his sponsorship of the race. The Karuk runners in training had a strict daily regimen starting with a 5 a.m. plunge in the river and a two-mile run and rubdown before breakfast. They would then spend the day running and hiking over the mountain trails. At times, they would run up the Klamath River to Hamburg and back for 60 miles. For whatever reason, California counties had trouble finding running entrants. They looked to sponsor Zuni runners from New Mexico. Serious recruiting and training started under the direction of Mike Kirk, the AAU Commissioner for Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. He trained and picked three Zuni Indians as being the toughest and the best of the Zuni reservation near Gallup, New Mexico. It was reported, The Zuni runners are a colorful lot, with headbands and silver belts. When they run, they strip to the waist. The three runners were sponsored by three California counties. Even though it was a race, the main purpose of the event was pretty much understood by those involved. The serious purpose is attracting statewide and national attention to the wonderful Redwood Highway, the glories of the Redwoods, and the resources of the counties of the Redwood Empire. For the redwood trees of California are probably the oldest of living things. The redwoods that grow along the coast live to be 2,000 years old. They are young at 350 years, they are mature at 1,000 years, and they reach old age at 1,500 years. By the early 1900s, people were looking around at what used to be these majestic old-growth redwood forests and realizing that something needed to be done to make sure that that there were remaining redwoods. The Save the Redwoods League was formed and they managed to garner enough support and enough funding to buy some privately owned lands which contained some of the stands of uncut redwoods. The highway in those days was mostly a narrow two-lane unpaved road winding through forests and redwoods. It was promoted as a road more typical of California than any other route within its borders. A highway that breathes the very spirit of the West, in the wide spaces of its vision and in the wilderness of beauty, which it opens to the motorist. On June 11th, officials and contestants started to arrive at San Francisco and were hosted at the Manx Hotel. Eleven runners would start. They were said to be 
bronze-skinned, sleek-muscled, and real descendants of the old-time West. These figures were an interesting picture as they met in a group for the first time to discuss plans for the heartbreaking rest of endurance that will keep them pounding over the long and hilly route for 10 to 15 days. A caravan of cars were obtained for race officials, the press, and some moving picture outfits who would film the events. Each runner would be followed by an automobile containing his backers, trainers, and an inspector. Eight Karuk runners were entered along with three Zuni runners. The eight Karuk entrants with their new Indian names were Rushing Water, Flying Cloud, Fighting Stag, Falcon, Mad Bull, Thundercloud, Sweet Eagle, and Big White Deer. Three were brothers, Mad Bull, Fighting Stag, and Rushing Water. The Zuni entrants from New Mexico were Jamin, Malika, and Chochi. All had been trained for endurance since their childhood, and all had won awards in inter-tribal Indian races of New Mexico. June 14, 1927 was race day. The 11 runners assembled at San Francisco City Hall, along with about 5,000 cheering spectators. The press were in a frenzy. One photographer punched a rival photographer in the nose as they tried to get a prized photo. At 10 a.m., the starting gun was fired for the start of the Redwood Indian Marathon. Eleven copper-colored racers capered down Market Street to Sausalito Ferry, escorted by city officials and a cheering throng, also with their trainers who will accompany them with trailers. The runners sprinted fast for 1.8 miles to the ferry building in just 15 minutes. After being ferried over the bay, a large crowd met the runners as they disembarked on the Marin shore of Sausalito. At 11.42 a.m., a pistol again cracked to start the official race, and the crowd cheered them as they began their mile-eating trot northward. About 6,000 people lined the Redwood Highway for several miles. All the runners stayed together for the first five miles, jogging slowly, but then Jamin, one of the Zuni, suddenly sprinted into the lead like a shot. He ran the 14 miles to San Rafael in just one hour and 19 minutes, opening up a one-mile lead. Jamin won $100 for being the first to arrive at that city. That was the reason for his fast initial sprint. There, he was injured when a movie camera tripod jammed him in the back. He waited for the other two Zunis to catch up, and then they all rested for two hours. Flying Cloud of the Karuk went into the lead. Still on day one, at 5.53 p.m., after six hours of running, Flying Cloud was the first to reach Petaluma, mile 38, a small city of about 8,000 people. As Flying Cloud approached, the fire department set off sirens to let the city know the first runner was arriving. Crowds came out and lined Main Street, cheering Flying Cloud as he went by. Many people climbed up on house roofs to get a good glimpse. A throng of well-wishers followed after Flying Cloud, but soon his trainer, following him in a Buick, decided that it was time for him to have a good supper and turned him around back to Hotel Petaluma for an hour. Some of the runners went to restaurants, others went to the hotel. The hotel gave them a very cordial welcome, just as if they were, quote, all dolled up. They were greeted by all the guests and left feeling refreshed after a good rubdown. After sunset, the motion picture men set up at Petaluma wanted to still film the final runners arriving into town. 
Fat Bill LaRue, a well-known heavyweight boxer contender, was helping the movie delegation put out flares for the light. But his overcoat caught on fire. He was mightily scared, but said, It's alright, as long as the fire department was not disturbed. The three Zuni were the last to arrive at about 9.30 p.m. The group presented a pretty picture as they jogged along Main Street and all along the line they were heavily cheered, despite the fact that they were the last to reach the city. Large crowds in automobiles followed them as they continued north towards Santa Rosa. The traffic was incredible. Officer Andrew Stein was in charge of the traffic on Main Street. The crowd in front of the courier office, the official checking station, was so large that it was impossible for machines to make their way along the thoroughfare. Some of them were moving so slowly that they were, quote, steaming like clambakes. Flying Cloud extended his lead and was the first to reach Santa Rosa, mile 54, with an 8-mile lead over rushing water. An accident occurred during the night along the race route. Victor Grand of Santa Rosa was motoring south, encountered a group of runners on the highway, swerved his car, and ran into a ditch. He suffered a broken collarbone and a right arm and was taken to the hospital for treatment. Day 2 At 7.30 a.m., after sleeping about four hours, Flying Cloud left Healdsburg, about four miles ahead of Rushing Water, who had run more miles during the night. At Geyserville, mile 76, some young men pulled a prank on the town. Bruno Soleri, age 15, quote, Dressed in proper running togs and grease paint applied, he looked like a redskin. Soleri jogged through Geyserville and was checked in at Marathon headquarters. The crowds cheered. Horns tooted. He continued on running through a wildly enthusiastic crowd. But as he ran on, since he wasn't in running shape, he soon became exhausted and was forced to stop. Then someone recognized him and the gig was up. When the true runner, Flying Cloud, arrived at Geyserville later in the morning, the enthusiasm was diminished. There were quite a few scowls as the spectators took a close look to see if he was fake or genuine. In the afternoon, Flying Cloud arrived at Cloversdale, mile 86. He stopped to avoid running during the hot day. Mad Bull and Falcon caught up during the afternoon and also stopped to sleep. In the evening, the three left Cloverdale together, feeling much refreshed. Within a mile, Mad Bull took the lead. It was believed that Flying Cloud disliked the quiet-natured Mad Bull and that a charged rivalry had developed between them. Mad Bull later said, I was resting when back down the road I saw Cloud coming into view. I changed my shoes and took off. He never caught me. It was reported, All runners are showing signs of suffering from the heat and a few, if any, have escaped blisters from running on the hot pavement. Carbon monoxide fumes from automobiles that crowd too close to the runners are also telling on them. By the third day, the tasks of continuing to grind out miles and struggling with poor sleep patterns were taking a toll on all the runners. Mad Bull arrived at Ukiah, mile 118, a city of 3,000, at about 6 o'clock a.m. with a three-mile lead over Flying Cloud. 
at Willett's, mile 143, Madbowl arrived first about 1 p.m. and stopped to sleep, letting Flying Cloud catch up about 4 p.m. But Flying Cloud also stopped for a rest. Madbowl hit the road again about 6 p.m. and shortly after, two Zunis, Malika and Chochi, also showed up at Willett's. They had plans to sleep there until midnight. As for the others, the long trek was wearing them down. Three Karooks were together more than 20 miles behind. Both were in bad shape and were taken to receive medical attention. They later returned to their stopping point to continue. Bringing up the rear, Jamin, the other Zuni, was about 72 miles behind the leaders, still determined to catch up. By morning on day four, Madbowl reached mile 173 after covering 37 miles during the night. He had stretched his lead to 14 miles ahead of the rest of the field. Harry Ridgway was the president of the Marvelous Marin Club and referee for the race. He drove his LaSalle sedan up and down the road from the leader to the last runner. Sometimes he drove more than 300 miles in a day to make sure the competitors were running all the way. The road was always well covered by cars, and he later reported that there was never a charge of cheating. The two Zunis, Malika and Chochi, were very anxious to catch up to Madbull. They refused to hold back, defying their trainer and threatened to scalp him. During an argument, they broke away and started off against his orders and planned to run to suit themselves as they rebelled against the restraint. The day went well for these determined runners, and they caught up to Madbull's lead. In the evening, Madbull arrived at Garbersville, mile 219, still holding a 12-mile lead. He checked into Hotel Benbow, a new spacious resort, soaked in a hot bath, had a meal, and slept in one of the hotel's best suites for several hours. On the fifth day, Madbowl passed through Dyersville, mile 243, before noon, marking the halfway point for the race. His lead had dwindled to nine miles over Malika. Chochi was an additional two miles further back. They were no longer running and instead trying to use a walk-only strategy that seemed to be working. In the afternoon, Chochi, ten miles behind Madbowl, became quite ill and was stopped by his trainer until the doctor could examine him. He had been pushing for 15 hours straight, covering 50 miles trying to overtake Madbull, but he would now fall way behind. Madbull was ahead in Scotia, a lumber town. He was smiling and looking fresh. Malika had fallen back to 21 miles behind. At Fortuna, mile 276, the girls tried to flirt with Madbull because, quote, they wanted to bug him. But he stuck to his business at hand. His stop was short, and then he ran strong for five more miles to Lolita in 75 minutes. He had arrived on the coast, where the Eel River flowed into the Pacific Ocean. Crowds ahead to the north at Eureka on the Pacific Coast started to line the route of the Redwood Highway to welcome the leader. At 11 p.m., Madbull arrived at Eureka, mile 298, which was a large city of 16,000 people. He had about a 30-mile lead ahead of the next runners, Flying Cloud and Falcon. A crowd of about 500 fans stayed up to cheer him to the noise of fire sirens. With such a large lead, he announced plans to stay for the night. He took a warm bath and fell asleep in the tub.
Up the road, eight miles at Arcata, they had been expecting Mad Bull through their town soon, but the firemen there got word that he had stopped to sleep at Eureka. This funny story was told. Some boys at the fire department conceived the idea that someone dress up as an Indian and run through the town about midnight. Leslie Buck was nominated for the job. The rest of the guys painted him up, put him in shorts and tennis shoes, and he was ready to run. Lee Lundgren's car was signed with Mad Bull's number, and someone acted as his trainer. Around 11.30 p.m., the fire whistles blew, and people got out of bed and headed for the plaza, including Les Buck's father. Around midnight, here came Les, followed by his car and trainers, complete with a local night watchman who moved the crowd back. They fooled everyone, passing within three feet from his dad, who failed to recognize him. Les ran almost to the old grammar school, and then jumped in the car and headed to get into his street clothes. Way back at mile 86, Jamin, the determined Zuni, finally was withdrawn from the race by his trainer. His feet were in too much pain to continue. Flying Cloud, the Zaruk, and Malika, the Zuni, teamed up in second place and were enjoying each other's company. Flying Cloud could not speak the Zuni language, and Malika could not speak English. They used signs to communicate. It was reported, The two apparently were quite chummy. At one point, Flying Cloud was given an orange by one of his handlers. He stopped to eat it, and Malika refused to go on without him. Day 6 After a nice eight hour of sleep at Eureka, Mad Bull left in the morning. It had been his longest rest during the race. He soon arrived at Arcata, where the imposter passed through during the night. The story continued. The fire whistles blew and the real Mad Bull came through. There was almost a riot on the plaza, as one bunch said that he came through in the night, and the others said there he is right now. The argument continued for months. Was it midnight or 8.30 in the morning? Mad Bull's strategy to stay ahead was to never run up the hills. He would power walk them and then run the downhills and flats. He still held a 14-mile lead over Flying Cloud, who had gone ahead of Malika. With the highway skirting the Pacific Ocean for nearly 100 miles since Eureka, it was reported, Mad Bull was greatly refreshed by invigorating air from the sea. Mad Bull continued on, reaching mile 333 in the evening and stretched his lead to 20 miles during the night. Day 7. With the end getting closer, Mad Bull continued to pile up the miles, traveling along the ocean coastline, determined to hold the lead. Mad Bull was approximately 70 miles from the Oregon state line and seemed to sense the goal as a horse would, his stall after a hard drive. He grinned cheerfully as he loped along the highway 1,000 feet above the misty Pacific waters. Next, Mad Bull arrived at the coastal town of Crescent City, mile 385, about 5 p.m. He was 14 miles ahead of Flying Cloud and had 87 miles to go to reach the finish at Grants Pass, Oregon. He rested at Crescent City until 10 p.m. when he heard Flying Cloud had caught up. Mad Bull's 20-mile lead from the previous day had evaporated, but he quickly hit the road again. 
Flying Cloud needed rest and stayed for three hours, taking up the chase again a little after midnight, nine miles behind the desperate Mad Bull. By dawn on the eighth day, the racing was intense. Mad Bull reached Patrick's Creek, mile 412, at 5 a.m., determined to reach the finish at Grant's Pass by evening. Flying Cloud had lost ground and was nearly four hours behind. Malika was more than 30 miles behind. All three leaders were walking today, the pace having began to tell on them. Flying Cloud was slightly ill, but was exhibiting a fighting spirit and was determined to finish second at least. At about 11 a.m., Mad Bull crossed into Oregon with about 44 miles to go. His pace was continuous as he rested only a short time during the day. At about 8 p.m., he was within 12 miles from the finish and he started running again. A little after midnight on June 22, 1927, Mad Bull ran through a lane of automobiles parked on the Grants Pass streets that were filled with people, including his family, who wanted to see the finish of the race. It was estimated that even at this late hour, there were 4,000 people in the streets. Men, women, and children tried to outdo each other in noise-making, whistle-screeched, claxton sounded, and a wild confusion prevailed. At 12.16 a.m., Mad Bull finished the Redwood Indian Marathon to win the $1,000 prize plus town prizes. He finished 10 miles ahead of Flying Cloud and about 30 miles ahead of Malika. His finish time for the 480 miles was 7 days, 12 hours, and 34 minutes. It was reported, Mad Bull came in smiling, but worn out. Just as he crossed the finish line, Miss Redwood Empire, Little Fawn, of the Hopi Indians, rushed out, threw her arms around the winner, and gave him a tribal kiss. Movie men focused their cameras on him, and he forced a smile, but said nothing other than thank you. He later said, I could have run another five or six miles, maybe. Maybe not. Flying Cloud finished in second place about eight hours later. Lame but game. As he crossed the finish line, marking the goal, he sank on the running board of a nearby car, but still had plenty of spirit to smile at the request of the cameraman. As soon as the movie men were through, the weary runner was whisked away to bed. Mad Bull slept late into the morning despite efforts to rouse him to reenact his finish for daytime pictures and the movies. He was finally up by noon and received a total of $1,325 prize money. Two hours later, he was a proud owner of a new Chrysler automobile with his name, Mad Bull, painted on the side. The car cost him $1,050 cash. Learn how the power of leadership is yours in a Chrysler. Flying Cloud also bought a car with his winnings. During the afternoon, Malika came toward Grant's Pass. A fellow tribesman had accompanied Malika on the last lap of his journey playing a harmonica. Crowds cheered madly for the very popular Zuni as the pair trotted along the Redwood Highway toward the goal. When Malika breasted the tape at the finish, his tired legs pushing his body in a final spurt of speed, a mighty shout went up from the spectators and crowds rushed out to greet him. Malika was exhausted but smiling happily. He was the only Zuni that finished. Four more Karuks finished. There were four DNFs. With all the press coverage across America, Mad Bull became an instant celebrity. 
In the days following the race, the runners stayed in California and were guests at events such as a huge July 4th parade in Eureka, where Mad Bull drove his new car. A promoter arranged a vaudeville tour for the runners, and they appeared throughout Northern California. But the tour fizzled due to poor organization by the promoter. Mad Bull returned to Grants Pass and worked at whatever jobs he could find. For a time, he was a flagman for a crew improving the Redwood Highway. As for the Zunis, they took the train to Los Angeles where Jamin was to be trained for a 500-mile Los Angeles to Phoenix marathon. His older companions had had enough of it and will not try again, but will leave Los Angeles for their home. It does not appear that the 500-mile race took place. The 1927 race was so successful in attracting attention that the Redwood Indian Marathon was held again in 1928. There were 29 runners entered. Mad Bull, Flying Cloud, and Malika again ran, and this time Flying Cloud won in less than seven days, crushing Mad Bull's previous time. Malika placed second. Mad Bull didn't finish because he claimed that someone sabotaged his race by dumping some glass shards in his running shorts. He later chafed badly and had to pull out. A third race was being planned for 1929, but it never came together. Later, with the stock market crash and the onset of the Great Depression, the race was never run again. Mad Bull married, but his wife soon died. He returned to Happy Camp and mined gold and worked as a logger. He then married again to Beulah, and they had three children. Sixty years after the race in 1987, six alumni of Grants Pass High School recreated the 1927 race as part of the high school's centennial celebration. Running legs of 12 to 16 miles each, the relay team took six and a half days to run what was then 460 miles on the modern, improved Redwood Highway. One relay participant, Wayne Morrow, said, The longer we were out there, the more we realized there was a hero on this course, and it wasn't any of us. There is a hero of this 1987 run, and he is this man right here, John Madbull Southard. John Madbull Southard died two years later in 1989 at the age of 85 and was buried at Ferry Point Cemetery near Happy Camp, California. As I was writing this episode, I was able to be in San Francisco. One early morning, I ran to City Hall and then ran the first couple miles down Market Street toward the ferry building, trying to imagine what that day in 1927 looked like when 11 Native Americans ran through the streets lined by thousands while police stopped all the streetcars to let these amazing ultra runners make their way through the city. It took them 15 minutes to reach the ferry building. It took me 20 minutes with no one stopping the traffic for me. It seemed like I was running on historic ground. As famous as it became in 1927, the Redwood Indian Marathon was all but forgotten except for in the local communities along the Redwood Highway that participated or witnessed the event. But it was a key event in ultra-running history that influenced C.C. Pyle's Bunyan Derby and many other ultra-running events in the future. 
I hope you like these episodes of the Ultra Running History Podcast. And if you do and want to help, please visit ultrarunninghistory.com and use the donation button to help out. All this doesn't come together free. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>